what we're going to talk about today, I, I think, is is the doorway to information that is go, going to be investigated. And I think it's really, really rock solid. But there are some qualitative points of interest that that may not be met yet. So uh, I wanted to, to kind of resynthesize everything I was I was uh, working on and delayed last week a little bit to this week. It, but I, I also don't want to rehash a lot of the anecdotal stuff we talked about last week because that that was very much going to some of the history of these artificial sweeteners, some of the things that people claim or you may read on the internet. Um, I don't necessarily think they're very conspiratorial, but there are some really important anecdotal experiences that people have had and very consistently. So, so I'll, I'll kind of keep those on a shelf and, and refer to them when, when I need to, but I really want to go through just one meta-analysis today. And I chose this one because I think it is the, the most current. Uh, I believe this was done in 2018. Yep. Um, I, I think it was extremely fair in the fact that it wasn't overreaching. It didn't make a lot of harsh conclusions out of pure conjecture. Uh, I thought it was kind of broad in the fact that uh, three different schools worked on this, the medical schools in uh, Germany, Brazil, and Harvard. So it, it to, to me, it has some legs. There's some merits here. It, it didn't have the greatest amount of citations I think a meta-analysis could have with only 42. I've, I've covered some on Fridays here where, you know, you're in the, you know, mid 200 range. But at the same time, I, there's not a lot of research done on this particular topic. Um, so I, I think what you'll see is, is some interesting history in the fact that saccharin as a sweetener came out, you know, more than 100 years ago, 120 years ago. Uh, cyclamate was another one, which I had never even heard of before reading into this. Uh, aspartame, which I don't think was really commercialized until maybe the 70s or 80s, uh, you know, was already here for quite a while. Um, ACE-K, you know, shortly after that, xylitol is more of a, I don't know, kind of a, it's, it's almost used more in, in foods than, than drinks. Uh, sucralose, of course, is Splenda. And Neotame is one that they think is going to replace aspartame. Uh, it it su supposedly has less side effects and less, less chemical toxicity in the body. Um, but, you know, look when that came out, 92, and it's still not yet on the market. So I, I think when major companies understand the, the baggage that comes along with artificial sweeteners and some of the worries and concerns, you know, they're definitely dragging their feet, or you could look at it as being very, very careful before they decide to make a wholesale change with, with, you know, multi, multi-billion dollar companies with reach in, in virtually every country in the world. Uh, another interesting note, if you know anything about just chemical patents and so forth is most of these were actually found by accident. You know, they're, they're looking for other things and they're like, oh, wait a second, this really tastes sweet. Like maybe we can sell this to a, a food company or something. So um, I won't get into all that, but let's, let's look at the entire premise of this particular meta-analysis. And the reason I said I kind of like this one is they uh, man, I mean, some meta-analyses go through, you know, an entire history, which is fantastic. And, and they look at everything that's ever been asserted or it, it, everything that's been studied and they really break it down well. And, you know, and, and that's good. I mean, that's what you want from a meta-analysis. This one, whether you may think it's good or bad, 
they really synthesized it into two major points. And they said, you know, out of all of the studies out there, what we think is most important is what's happening in the neurological and biological food reward system loop. So things like serotonin, dopamine, and so forth, you know, is there something there because studies have, have asserted that. And then as you'll see a little bit later in the gut microbiome, you know, are, are there changes there that that's causing physical issues with these, these chemical additives? So you guys, you guys understand taste buds, taste receptors and, uh, I, I think in just the normal internet speak of this topic, you hear a lot about that. And I certainly have parroted those stories over the years when we talk about, you know, oh, your body, you know, your taste buds taste something sweet. You've got this artificial sweetener. Some of them, I think it's, uh, which one was it? Maybe there's a, that cyclamate or something is like 600 times sweeter than sugar. Um, and so your taste buds, all of a sudden, just like if you smell something baking and you start salivating and your, your stomach starts pumping out digestive enzymes, you know, just the taste of something sweet creates a change in your body. And that's incredibly true. Uh, we had a question last week when I did the introduction to this and, it, and it's, it, it, I'm going to have a very different answer than the way I answered last week after reading this. So I think that'll be interesting. But when, when you have a sugar or a sugar substitute, anything sweet, of course, it hits your taste receptors. Uh, if you know what, what the gustatory system is in your body, the insula, insular cortex, you know, that's where we decide whether something is really, really good or it is, um, you know, repulsive, something that makes you want to throw up and not eat it. Um, interestingly, last night, as I was thinking about this, uh, my 10-month-old my grandson was over. He was hungry, waiting for dinner. And, and I happen to have some dried blueberries and I'm thinking, I don't think he's ever had dried blueberries. These are like organic and not very flavorful. They're not coated in, in a sweetener or anything. So he looks at it and, and he's a very cautious kid. It's really interesting to watch him because he'll do things like he'll walk or he'll, he'll crawl up to something and he'll push on it first to see if it's stable. And if it's like a vase or something, like he'll just walk away. And he went up and there was a panel on my wall that didn't look like the rest of the wall because it's painted differently. And he walked up and he kind of tapped on it. And then he felt it was solid. And th there he climbed up the wall. Uh, you know, same thing. He won't go down steps yet. He'll get it right up to the edge of a step and he'll reach down almost like, he, you know, here's the surface of the step. He wants to make sure his eyes aren't deceiving himself. So he'll reach down. Okay, there's that the floor does end there. And then he'll back away. So I give him this dry blueberry. And you can see he's looking at it like, I don't know, is this something I'm supposed to put in my mouth or not? Because he gets conflicting messages like you can chew on your toy, but you can't chew on that. So he puts this in his mouth and he kind of nibbles on it. He's got all his little front teeth now. And so he's like, you know, scissoring through it. And uh, I can see his brain processing. He's like, ah, you know, does this taste good or not? And then all of a sudden, because of the gustatory stimulation, his insular cortex says, sugar, 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 sugar. You know, there's carbs in this. So his eyes light up and he immediately like reaches inside the bag. Like he wants more. And he just sat there eating all these blueberries. If it was something really bitter, you know, or, you know, hopefully, you know, if something was toxic, you would taste bad and you spit it out. You know, that's how we, before we even had language, you know, learned what to eat and not to eat. But there are, there, if you know anything about uh, neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, everything in your brain connects to everything else. So not only do you have this direct neuronal connection from your taste receptors to your, your insular cortex for that disgust reflex, you also have uh, 
connections, neurons that go to your hippocampus. So you remember, oh, I remember what this tastes like. I remember this was good. I remember this was satisfying. And so, you know, all of these things go everywhere up into your, your temporal lobe and even connections into the reward system. So if you know where the nucleus accumbens is, which is kind of in front of the hypothalamus, which is in front of the brainstem, which kind of gets like right sandwiched in between the neocortex, this is where you start getting into, and a lot of people on YouTube, neuroscientists, you know, talk about reward all the time. There are now books written about dopamine, what, what drives us, what incentivizes us. But there are connections to all of the hormones that, that motivate us in different ways, whether it's for happiness or pleasure or taste or reward, anticipation. And when we taste sugar, just like my little grandson, it's like, bing, 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 bing. Your body knows this is something good. This is survival. This is a positive energy balance that is good for me. And so you get these neurochemical reactions to, to say, you know, this, this is good stuff on the way. So very, very important because when you, when an artificial sweetener hits those same, same taste receptors, you know, all of that same stuff goes on, you know, things start lighting up and it's like, this is good. This is great. But there is no positive energy change. You don't actually have carbohydrate or sugar going into your stomach. So all of a sudden, there's a disruption at that, that hypothalamic nucleus, the, the nucleus albicons, and so, or accumbens. And so uh, everything changes right there. It's not just like faking your body out because what that, that nucleus accumbens does is it starts to say, you know, you had this hunger response, you know, whether it's just natural hunger or whatever's happening in your body with blood sugar and so forth. You guys know, you know, ghrelin, leptin and all that. Uh, but, but you get all of this triggering anticipatory reward system happening, all these triggers, but then the nucleus accumbens, which would normally say, okay, we got some sugar coming in. Let's go ahead and turn off the hunger response. Doesn't happen. So you keep drinking that Coke Zero, you keep having that Diet Mountain Dew, you keep putting that Splenda in your coffee, and you just get hungrier and hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. So a lot of people who anecdotally say, you know, I can be totally fine. And then as soon as I have a, a diet soft drink, like I actually get rage hunger. And maybe instantly, maybe that afternoon, maybe the next day, I certainly have experienced that. And I first noticed it in a contest prep where I was specifically avoiding anything unnatural. I, I was just, I wanted to leave nothing on the field. I wanted to make sure I gave this particular contest run my best. So just in case there was any merit to these artificial sweetener controversies, I said, I'm just not going to do it. But then I remember, um, compromising with myself and say, well, may maybe I'll just do one on the weekend. Maybe that'll be my reward for a good week. I'll, I'll have a great big old diet Pepsi or something like that. And I remember for the next two or three hours, just feeling hypoglycemic, hungry. I mean, hung that hunger stayed with me for a couple of days and then it was gone. And I thought, ah, yeah, maybe that was just because I ha had a hard leg workout or didn't get enough sleep or something. So I, I did it again the next week. And, and that was just a very consistent, repetitive cycle. And, and now after looking at some of these, you know, biochemical 
pathways, it, it makes sense. So here's an interesting study that was done <clears throat> because now they started thinking, okay, there, there are very specific receptors, taste receptors, and we don't know what's happening. Is, is it actually the chemical itself or is it that taste response? So they gave different subject groups in this study, you know, water, water with aspartame, water with sugar, or water taking aspartame capsules. So you got the same aspartame load, but without the taste. <clears throat> Guess which one made everybody hungrier? The one with the aspartame mixed in because you had that taste. So that pinged all of those anticipatory uh, mechanisms, but then instantly again, the hypothalamus said, okay, wait a second. There's, there's actually no, no positive energy balance happening here. So let's, let's keep that hunger, you know, cranking hormonally. And here's another thing that is at least a, a point of conjecture. This is something they're still looking at phenylalanine, which is one of the, the components of aspartame is an exact chemical precursor of catecholamine uh, neurotransmitters specifically, and, and that directly increases hunger. So you're now ingesting something in that aspartame that just literally makes you hungrier. Like that's its job. That's its chemical role when you, when you put that into your body. So if you want to make yourself hungrier, consume aspartame, that's, that's a direct response of it. So Again, I was just completely unaware of this until I looked at this particular meta-analysis. Um, so we kind of already went over that. So this was something, um, I do need to move this down now. I'm, I want to read this to you guys because I, I wanted to make sure I got the exact quote. So these studies pr propose a hypothesis. The disassociation between sweet taste and caloric content can lead to a compensatory increase in food consumption and a positive energy balance. Finally, artificial sweeteners, precisely because they are sweet, stimulate the preference for taste and the desire and independence for sweet foods, favoring an increase in the consumption and consequently weight gain. So I guess I had already told you guys all that. I didn't have to read it. But um, here's, here's what's incredibly interesting. Probably just what I wrote above that is that they decided, well, you know, maybe people, you know, because of our just hippocampus connections, our connection to memory, you taste something. And so maybe this is almost a learned behavior in its habit. It's not necessarily this chemical reaction directly. So they decided to do it in animals and they got the exact same reaction every time. So, so again, uh, you know, those two things, one that's, you know, been studied very, very well in that entire, you know, hypothalamus loop and then, you know, maybe that phenylalanine is, is directly causing hunger, you know, they're, they're not ready to say that the, the latter is, is a definite, but they said it, it's, it obviously makes sense. You know, there, there are a lot of things in our brain neurotransmitters that have direct replacements in nature. You know, that's why like in the cannabinoid system in our brain, cannabis has a direct effect. That's why psilocybin in mushrooms is a direct replacement for serotonin. So, you know, this is just another one. Okay, now let's let's shift over to the gut microbiome. Um, I had also heard about this as a potential issue, but I had never looked at it specifically. Matter of fact, you know, this is something interesting. <clears throat> I, I thought with the post I made that there are people in our industry, coaches that that I, I would consider, you know, well educated, 
have are very outspoken about certain things that really show their lack of knowledge and their personal bias. There are there are a lot of people when this topic comes up. Well, we kind of like I said last week. Uh, there, there are people who say there's never been a single study that shows a super high protein diet damages your kidneys. And I, I've heard people with PhDs in exercise science and nutrition say that. It, and I always think, what the hell is wrong with you? There are tons of studies that show that. Like, why, how, how can you not even know this except that your own bias just makes you want to sing a song from that hymnal and, and not even look. I mean, that's that's how bias can really affect even, even educated people. Uh, but with with the uh, the gut microbiome here, this is something that, again, I had heard over and over and over. And, um, you know, I just had never looked because a lot of this particular research is within the last 10 or so years. And I was answering questions about this topic 25 and 30 years ago. So uh, I'm, I'm very glad I, I chose to kind of update my, my knowledge base here. Uh, just a little bit of you know, information. You guys probably already read it here, but all the different bacteria in our body. Um, one of the things that was interesting to me, besides the fact that we have co-evolved with these pathogens and parasites and bacteria and so forth in our body, I, I think at one time I read like 60% of our body mass is not even us. It's just all of this shit that coexists in us and on us, all these bacteria and pathogens and so forth. So, so we have used in that state of co-evolution, these bacteria to actually help us digest things that our own digestive system can't. And so a, a, a big bed of flora, you know, this microbiome with <clears throat> hundreds or so of different types of bacteria isn't just a, you know, bug in the system. It's not like we can do without it. And, you know, if it's, you know, quote, damaged or lost or changed, it's not a big deal. It's actually there uh, as a reflex to what we consume to literally help us digest those types of foods that we're regularly consuming. So we would not even get necessarily all of the nutrients and energy and so forth without a healthy microbiome. Uh, and when there is disruption, as you'll see here in a second, a lot of things happen, you know, negatively. So, you know, first of all, at least the big three sweeteners have been proven. This has been studied to disrupt that gut flora. And this is another thing that I think would surprise a lot of people who think that artificial sweeteners are not bad or they do nothing you know, negative to us. They 100% directly uh, you know, create a glucose intolerance. So you can overconsume artificial sweeteners just like you can overconsume uh, sugar and end up diabetic. So you almost need to think when, when you hear things like, you know, sucralose is three to 400 times sweeter than sugar, aspartame two to 400 times sweeter than sugar. Uh, maybe it's even stevia that, I mean, I didn't count that as an artificial sweetener because it's natural, uh, but that's like 600 times sweeter than sugar. So you're getting all of these things, as I said, that, that happen in that, that, you know, neural gastric loop in, in you know, especially behaviorally. But just because the gut microbiome is so disrupted, at least enough by a, a constant flow or high amount of these artificial sweeteners, that, that it does lead to glucose intolerance. 
I think I've got another point about that here. So one of the ways it does that is by just direct inflammatory response. So, so it triggers the, these, these inflammatory toxins to literally, you know, the mucosal lining, the submucosal lining, even the endothelial lining of your, your uh, intestine, small intestine, large intestine. You guys hear all the time about things like Crohn's disease and colitis and IBD, IBS, all that stuff. You know, a lot of those are created as just a systemic inflammatory response. And how many people that have suffered with some pretty severe GI dysfunction, how many would be surprised to maybe experiment a little bit and, and go down to zero artificial sweetener and find that all of their symptoms go away? You know, there, there have been studies regarding that as well. Um, another thing that it does is it disrupts the short chain fatty acid route um, with, with uh, butyrate, which is also, again, directly important for mucosal cells to regenerate in our, our GI system. Um, so, you know, intestinal permeability, I, I skipped that, and that whole uh, FXR factor in the liver that, that does just, uh, this is extremely important, decreasing insulin sensitivity, reflexively increasing pancreatic insulin. So there are some studies I know, individual studies, that every once in a while, a proponent of artificial sweetener, somebody out there in our industry who says, it's not bad for you, it's totally fine, don't listen to those, those people who are all you know, negative and down on artificial sweeteners, it absolutely directly increases uh, insulin production you know, because of this, this glucose intolerance. And I think because there are some studies, and we all know this, right? Like you could, you could have a hundred thousand studies on anything, get, you know, pick your topic. You're definitely going to find some outlying studies that just don't prove the status quo. And I don't think you just discard those, you know, you should pick those apart and see why does that study not show the same thing other studies do? Was it because their subjects were different? You know, they were older or younger was it a difference in the study design in some way? You know, maybe there's actually something to learn there. It's not just a conflict to say, well, this doesn't match up. Let's toss it. You know, maybe there's a way that, that things like this can be tolerated better. But uh, they're just, th th those, are, those are the exceptions to the rule. I'll just say that. And, uh, and this, is, this is where I really want to, you know, kind of end up. And then, then, you know, we'll have plenty of time for some discussion. Um, so because of those taste receptors, these, these specific taste receptors, there are studies that show what I told you anecdotally, that you, you can have direct hypoglycemia. Some of that is due to just that the change of you know, direct glucose intolerance, increased insulin and so forth. Again, something that I've talked about for a long, long, long time anecdotally. Um, but here's an interesting one. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this one slowly because I want it to sink in. There are studies that show in isocaloric environments with farm animals. So again, we're not talking about a self-reported human study where somebody can go and, and eat 12 donuts and not tell their, their you know, research assistant. With, with, with agricultural livestock, giving them the exact same food, but just adding artificial sweeteners to one, they don't get any more food. They just get the additive. Those animals gained weight. The others didn't. Direct weight gain 
by just consuming artificial sweeteners without it going through the behavioral system of you becoming hungrier and therefore eating more, because that's a correlative question mark. You know, when we say, well, you know, 60% of, or I should say, I make sure I don't misstate this. I think there's a 60% correlation to people who are obese, who consume a lot of artificial sweetener. So you could say, of course, correlation doesn't equal causation. And maybe because they're overweight, they try and you know do something about it. And they think one big step is using artificial sweetener. So it's not that that's causing it. That's always been the retort. But there are studies that show just consuming it directly increases fat gain. And, and it, it comes down to these direct changes in, in pancreatic function, liver function, and glucose intolerance. Um, so that, that was kind of a, that was kind of a mic drop moment, you know, as I was reading this and some of the changes in, in that insulin response is the fact that some studies show, as I wrote here in the bottom, a three times increase in glucose transporters, which is the mechanism that leads to that, that increased insulin and, and, and glucose intolerance. So, you know, as I said, I, I just thought that out of all of these studies out there that I started picking through a couple of weeks ago to present this, uh, it, it just got so far in the weeds of looking at all the different artificial sweeteners and so forth that I thought is a first brush against this topic for many of you, it would be good to look at the most up-to-date, a 2018 meta-analysis, looking at the, the biggest things in question right now, based on the biggest things that we actually know right now. So the, the things that we still have to keep in mind, in, in even with this particular meta-analysis, is that there is subject variance. You know, there are people who consume artificial sweeteners and none of this happens to them. There are people who are hyper responders, people who like really like when I say, you know, I have a, a big, you know, diet Mountain Dew or something after zero artificial sweetener, sweetener for a week. And I have that response, you know, maybe I'm an outlier on the other end of the continuum. Continue. Maybe it's not as bad for some people. Um, you know, I, I think there still has to be deeper dives. You know, once we start doing research on a topic, and researchers start to see, okay, there's a clear association here, or maybe this is something that really, you know, needs to be picked apart individually. You know, th those kind of studies will probably continue to go on. But as I joked about in my post, uh, you know, there's a lot of money in this game. There are a lot of people with vested interests in, in not allowing research that to show something negative or to actually show that it's positive. You know, you, you, you see a study done by whoever the manufacturer is of Splenda. Um, you know, do, do you think there's no pressure there to have a certain outcome? I, I, I don't like to be conspiratorial, but I, I know what human bias is and I know what big money can do to people. So I think there just has to be more and more and more research done in very specific areas before we make massive associations. Uh, there are also, going back to kind of last week, some of the more associative claims where like when, when aspartame first hit the market, you had a massive increase in reported headaches and uh, even like brain cancer and things like that. When Splenda came out, sucralose, a massive increase in bladder cancer and urinary you know, issues like that, just because of the different chemical uh, constituencies and what happens in your body. 
I didn't want to address any of that stuff because again, it just, it, it kind of gets away from what's happening internally. But if you are serious about your health, I think it makes sense to look at that. And those are always the kind of things where I, I hedge my bets in the middle. So if I think, okay, there is a chance that some of these things could be happening, I'm going to be the person who consumes very little of it. So just like I said earlier in the week when we were talking, maybe it was last Friday, but we were talking about this. And I said, here's, here's like my, my rock star bang type energy drink. And I said, I've literally been sipping on this thing since Monday. It's taken me five days to finish. I, I create some arbitrary rules for myself. Like I don't just slam, you know, diet soft drinks all day. I literally put no packets of sweetener in anything. Um, you know, and, and again, I've, you know, even before I knew information like this, I, I always like to hedge my bets against potential error or, or, you know, deviancy in the market. But here's, here's something else that I want to say anecdotally, and then, uh, then I'll kind of open it up to you guys. Um, I have always noticed when I'm very serious about losing weight that instead of using artificial sweeteners like, like a, a diet soft drink to try and bridge the gap between meals, I have always done better by using an actual full sugar kind of drink, but in the appropriate amount. So let's say that in between these two meals, there's, you know, I have a big enough gap where I'm, I'm gonna have some hunger and maybe I have that gap intentionally, maybe it's because of my schedule, but if I have something like a tiny, you know, one of the small Gatorades that has 22 grams of sugar, I could get the Gatorade zero and have no calories, right? Like quote, no calories, as we know now that that may not mean much. Um, but if I have that one that has a little bit of sugar, then the hypothalamus response is to literally turn off hunger instead of increase it. I get the benefit of that, that energy ba balance positivity and because I'm getting that little bit of a blood sugar rise that's very, very controlled, you know, small amount, not enough to go off the chart with insulin production. I literally feel better. And there's not, there's not a lot of gut load to that, right? You're, you're just drinking something. So that has nothing to do with, with what I'm presenting here today, except that that has always worked for me. And I feel like there's a lot of logic behind that based on, on what I, I shared here today is that, you know, you just, with with that smaller amount of sugar versus an artificial sweetener, you literally decrease hunger, whereas the artificial sweetener directly increases hunger. So so that may be more valuable for somebody losing weight, and then you don't get all of the gut microbiome disturbance. You don't get that that increased loop of um, you know just behavioral hunger. And, and you also avoid the direct glucose intolerance if, if you're doing this in a very controlled way. All right, so let me, uh, let me stop the screen share and see if you guys have any comments. I'm, I'm sure some of you are gonna be mad at me. Uh, Brunacini for sure, he's gonna, he's been slugging down that new Coke Zero. Uh, let's see, I know some people put it in the, chat here um, i'm getting a headache now that you think of it <laughs> see exactly you, you you do have headache issues um some of, some of these specific questions i may not have the answer to but let me see here is the hunger response from in particular to aspartame uh i i do believe 
Um, I, I do think that was the one studied in that one, except now maybe not. I, I think it was all three. I think it was the aspartame, saccharin, and uh, uh, sucralose, but I'll, I'll have to look that up. Um, Stacy, nice. Yeah, the GI systems of animals are definitely different than us. Uh, but again, if you just look at them compared to them, you know, they weren't compared to humans. So it was just, you know, here's subject group A, subject group B of, let's say, cows or pigs or horses. Everybody's getting the same amount of food, but the group we add the artificial sweetener to, they gained weight. So you're right. You know, would that happen to us directly? I don't know if that's been studied. But, but that particular study, they wanted to take away behavior. It's almost like a, a human inpatient study at that point. They're only giving them the food. Um, you know, they didn't get to go, you know, graze and that kind of thing. So, yeah, Amanda, as far as how much, uh, you know, so, so monk fruit sweetener, I did not look at that one. That's interesting. I'll have to look that up. Um, isn't that isn't that an actual sugar that's just used in small amounts? And so you're getting some calorie value there. I have to look at that one. Uh, but as far as how much is too much, I, I don't think that's even been studied. Like, like when they, when they do something like this and they're looking at toxicity levels, they, they try and get to a point where they're literally killing animals, right? Like, Oh, that was a little too far. Now we know, you know, rats compared to humans, you know, don't eat that much. And it's a, it's a shitload. I mean, you literally like to have that negative of consequences, but for what we're talking about, uh, it, it's not that much. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's the kind that you would consume. If you were somebody who drinks a 16 ounce diet soft drink, you know, three times a day or so, I think you're going to see some, some reaction, but I don't know how far, again, that's, that's variant person to person on your sensitivity level. Um, but yeah, that, that's one thing I did not look at. I, you know, I did not look at how many studies looked at different doses. I, I think that would be a good follow-up, you know, just to see if there are anybody who actually looked at that. If, if this amount causes an impact if, on average or this or this or this. That that's that's an important thing to uh, to follow up with. Anybody, uh, if you guys want to unmute and ask questions that way too, you don't have to just type them in. If, if you want to jump in, go ahead, Amanda. So I personally don't use artificial sweeteners. Um, I mean, I do use the the stevia, as you already know. So I guess my big question is: Does the stevia have the same effect? And like we know that it's natural, right? Um, does it have the same of like hunger effect that the aspartame and sucralose have. Um, I think, yeah, that's my main concern. So they studied it and it does. Matter of fact, this meta-analysis included stevia and I just dropped it. Maybe I shouldn't have um, because I wanted to talk about artificial sweeteners. So stevia actually has some positive digestive qualities. Like I, I don't think it would disrupt your gut microbiome at all, but in terms of that, that neurobio loop, you know, it definitely does because like you said, you're, you're still not getting that rise in blood sugar because you, you use so little, you know, it's 600 times sweeter than, than sugar. So even if there is some kind of calorie base there, which there is, you know, you could put in, like, I know in my coffee every morning, I mean, I'm putting in maybe a quarter of a teaspoon and you know, that's enough. So I'm getting that sweetness. I'm sure I'm getting a, a trigger, uh, but you know, that's maybe adding one gram of carbs or something. So right. 
I, I mean, it's still by far as a food additive or drink additive you're using yourself. It, it's a home run. And maybe that's where the monk fruit comes in as well. You know, similar to Sevia, like that's, that's the place to go to, to avoid all of those, those other effects, but it's, it's probably something you just don't want to use a ton of. Um, you know, it, what's really funny is uh, in my, in my coffee this morning, after preparing for this, uh, I, I tried it without Stevia and I'm like, Oh, I don't know if I can do this. I'm like, Oh, you know, I, I, <laughs> you say that because I literally like I was getting myself coffee I was like you know we're talking about this right now I'm just not gonna put any sweetener in it yeah it, I just use my my protein powder in my I always put my protein powder in my coffee even just a little bit so it still kind of gives it like a good flavor but it's a lot bolder than I'm used to <laughs> yeah I mean there are some things too so so one of our uh you know people who come on our, our chats almost daily said you know Joe I'm never going to give up my diet Pepsi I'm just not and uh so he asked the question last week, since I'm not, is it better for me to consume it with my food? And I did not have this particular, you know, knowledge last week. And so I said, logically, probably, but I don't know if it makes that much difference, but now it does because then, you know, you're getting that sweetness, but you still have that positive calorie energy balance going up. And so at least you won't get that massive hunger response. You may get some of those other effects, but, you know, ironically, a lot of us use the diet soft drinks and diet drinks in between meals for flavor, but that would be at least one, one little hack. So then my question to that would be, I mean, I mean, you said that you noticed when you were drinking these soft drinks that you would notice days later that you were hungry. So then that, that hunger can be a prolonged thing. Yeah. And that's just because of that mechanism, you know, because once, once you you're sensitized to that, it's almost like anything in the body has the, has an adaptive threshold probability. I mean, that's, that's how biochemistry works. So just like when you start dieting and you you go through that metabolic positioning switch, it gets, you you get better and better at using body fat as energy and, and you get more used to it. And so you, you get less and less hunger cues because you are becoming quote fats adaptive. And so, you know, the same thing kind of happens once you open that door to that hyper intense level of sweetness and then yet nothing is happening. And then maybe that's also that total disruption. If, if, if that has an immediate trigger, if I'm really sensitive and, and now I'm releasing more insulin in those, those glucose transporter hormones are, as, as I showed, three times higher. You know, if that's all it takes, which I don't know it does, but with subject variants, for some people it could, you know, maybe it does impact you for days and then it takes a while to come back down. I think that's yeah. just some of the anecdotal stuff that, you know, you may never sort out in research, but you, you, you know, what affects you in certain ways. Like, you know, your body, you know, what you can tolerate and what you can't. And I think that is anecdotally worth, worth factoring in. All right. But, you know, to, to, uh, one of the questions here about actual dose, um, I'm not somebody who is ever going to get rid of everything. Like you just said, if, if I have two scoops of protein powder a day, you know, even in the protein powder that I produce, you know, my own brand has sucralose in it, not a ton. Um, but you know, that's already some that I'm not going to get rid of. So it just makes me almost want to go back to, um, you know, what I did as a pre-contest measure, because I'm particularly interested right now 
in losing a little bit of body fat. You know, I'm in a calorie deficit, not, not harsh, uh, you know, not super aggressive, but it would be really interesting if I just dropped that down to next to nothing. If all of a sudden I feel better, I have more energy, less hunger, and I start losing faster, you know, again, anecdotal, but it would, it would, you know, I'm, I'm contemplating it after, after I try the new cook zero that Kevin's trying to push on me, big drug pusher that he is. Uh, any other, any other comments or questions, guys? Hi, this is Heather. Um, just anecdotally, if you're trying to just get some uh, a sweet taste to carry you through a period, watermelon and throw a little bit of salt on it. Not only do you get the, uh, the calories from the watermelon, but the salt helps increase your fluid retention, which tends to help me feel fuller and will carry me through to the next meal. Really smart. Yep. And that's, um, you know, that goes back to, I, I was a guest on a podcast this week and we were going through kind of a list of if you're not losing weight, if you're really trying and you're just not like, what's, what's the checklist, what could be going wrong. And uh, I got to that point of talking about the metabolic switch, actually my very first point, And the fact that it gets easier and easier and easier, but you have to be consistent. You know, you can't just throw yourself back and forth with these glucose and insulin rages. And, um, and, and the host said, oh, so you mean, Joe, you may have to be a little uncomfortable once in a while. Like, ooh, you know, we don't want that. We don't want to have to pay any price for success. And, uh, and, and I said, yeah, I mean, ironically, we, we kind of brush over that. You know, we, we, we forget that, yeah, you know, succeeding at something does cost you know, there is a sacrifice to it somewhere, but the irony is as soon as you get a week or two invested in the consistency, a lot of that hunger just physiologically goes away. So I thought Heather, you were going to ask initially, as you were asking your question, you know, what if you just need something sweet and then you gave a great solution with a watermelon, but I, I started to think, well, hang on a second. Let's, let's just, let's just, train ourselves not to need something sweet all the time. Like I know when I'm in a, a contest diet mode and, and I brought my calories down and I'm eating more consistent meal times and my macronutrient profile is more consistent. I mean, yes, I'm now in a calorie deficit, but very quickly I feel less hunger. And you guys know this, when you start increasing your carbs and you start getting you know inconsistent with your food amounts, you know, that's when hunger just goes higher and higher and higher and higher. And you feel like you can't stop it because that's, that's true hunger. That's just not habit. So, so once you kind of pay that price and, and desensitize those receptor sites for sugar, you get literal glucose tolerance improvements, you know, the whole ball game just gets easier. And so I, I as I was doing this, uh, you know, preparation, I was telling my wife some of these things. And if you guys have ever heard me talk about my wife, you know, we have four grown children. She's, she's never dieted in her life. Um, and yet she has abs. Like she doesn't work out as hard as me, but she works out. She doesn't, she's never tracked a macro in her life. And, she, and her answer to me was, well, I never eat artificial sweeteners. And like, exactly. You're one of those people that just, you know, you've stayed out of the cycle of needing more, always feeling hungry gut microbiome disturbance potential. Like you're one of those people that's just avoided this whole, you know, potential issue. 
Uh, and, and she's not somebody who just, and again, genetics are genetics. You know, she's, we, we could argue she's an ectomorph and all that, but, um, you know, didn't have to work out that way. She, she's just, she's somebody who has enough health values to, to avoid things like this. So I, I think that's an important thing to remember. And that's why it's a self-experiment. I may pick a date and just say, okay, no artificial sweeteners for X amount of time and just see what happens. Do a little self-study. But uh, I, I will follow up. I, I'll, I'll go ahead, Stacey. Um, you know, this is such an interesting topic and you are so right. It, it is a hot topic. There's a lot of money in this topic, um, particularly in the um, uh, education and academic and training world, uh, right, and research. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here at the School of Medicine and there's one of our, one of our, researchers uh he has created a company called biome and it he has a startup company and it focuses on the gut biome and he was doing his thing had his little startup doing his research advancing it and then all of a sudden gwyneth paltrow's company goop uh reaches out and wants to do their test to test everybody's gut biome and they come out with this results that shows how important it is to have carbs in your diet and not cut them completely for that that but that gut microbiome and all of a sudden mahmoud's company goes from you know a something we all know about to this giant like success overnight but at the same time one of um, it, it's a huge philanthropic family in our country comes to our Dean at the school of medicine and they want to put a wellness and nutrition pathway in the academic program for physicians. Mm -hmm. And so our Dean goes and does her due diligence to see like, who's doing this, who's doing it well, what model can we duplicate and where is there an evidence-based training and academic program for physicians in this country. And there was no clinical scientific definition that was reproducible to define wellness. That was a huge issue. So they had to start from there and build up because there was no model. There was people had definitions, but there was nothing scientific or evidence-based to back it up that they could roll into, you know, the traditional academic setting for physicians. And <clears throat> it is one of our elective pathways for our MDs, one of the most popular pathways and the one they have the greatest interest in because there's really nothing that helps them understand this. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it goes all the way back to the, there's a couple things there, Stacey. First, you know, physicians are people too. And so I have plenty of physicians who come to me because they can't lose weight and they need to get healthier. And, you know, you know, like, you know, how many, you drive by any hospital, how many nurses are standing by the back door smoking and are overweight and just, you know, we're, we're everybody is a person too, with the same struggles. So there's, there's a, maybe a higher percentage of medical professionals who are super healthy because they are motivated by that, but not all. And then you get into the fact that sociologically, we are a free enterprise capitalistic 
you know, country. And that's very, very protected. You know, the, the people writing the checks to politicians are the ones who are sending lobbyists to Washington, D.C. for their company well-being, whether it's healthy or not. There are many, many European countries where things like this are just illegal. Like, oh, there's a there's a there's something in this that would hurt people. We're going to make that illegal. You can't sell that in this country. That'll never happen here because if you can make a buck and tax it, we're going to sell it in the U.S. So as a consumer, you have to be more diligent or vigilant about, you know, looking at these things. And, you know, this is why we, we kind of have the political divides we have. Uh, you know, it's almost we're left up to our own devices on who we're going to trust, who we're going to listen to, how we're going to, you know, distill that information ourselves. But that's a, that's a great example. You know, whoever's putting the money in, you know, they're going to have the biggest voice. And if they're pro something or against something, more people are going to hear about it based on how many dollars are behind it, not because it's good for us or bad for us.